Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Please welcome back Mr. Raphael Madden. Thank you very much. I have to say that today's talk is going to be, or was, for me, uh, a bit difficult to put together. And it isn't because there was too little to say, I assure you. It's because there was far too much to say. Um, I could, without letting you have any breaks at all, except for perhaps one or two for bathroom, um, uh, keep you here until Christmas. Uh, and I think I might have gotten to the third year of St. John Paul's pontificate. Um, there still be so much more to tell. Uh, there's also another difficulty, and that is that uh, it's not just that the topic was arranged for me uh, with three different streams, uh, President Reagan, Prime Minister Thatcher, and of course our beloved Holy Father, the Santo Subito, St. John Paul II. Um, uh, they, history, God himself ordained that they should be there and uh, that they should all be operating towards a common goal as, as I'm going to discuss tonight. Um, but it is difficult to keep a story going when you've got three different storylines. It's a little bit like one of those soap operas or something. And, uh, or if you'd like a different image, I, I have seen um, uh, more experienced hands than mine braiding girls' hair. You know, and it's three strands, and I don't know how it works. Um, it, I attribute it to magic. Um, uh, but this has a little bit of the flavor of that for me. And so I'm going to try to keep everything braided together. And I have a few uh, techniques that I'm going to try. Uh, I hope, on, on this experimental audience, I hope that it's successful. Um, and then failing that, I hope that you don't tell me that it wasn't. Um, <laughs> Reverend fathers, Reverend brothers, Reverend sisters, uh, ladies and gentlemen, dear brethren in the Lord. Some very, very close friends of mine um, heard my talk on the horrible uh, Armenian Holocaust. Um, and they chided me recently for how I had gone about it. Uh, I, I said to them, you know, what's the matter? I, I just gave some context before launching into the Holocaust. And they said, you began 1,300 years before the Holocaust. Um, and I said, well, it was actually 1,500 years, but um, it, was, it was context. <laughs> Um, they feared that I might never actually make it to Armenia in that particular talk. And I think the subtext of their comment was that uh, today, since we'd be discussing communism, um, I could hardly go back before 18, the 1800s when uh, Karl Marx devised it. And so that was something of a relief. Um, I regret to say that I'm going to disappoint them. 
if that's what they were thinking, uh, I, I shall in fact disappoint them because I think that I have to go at least a bit earlier uh, than the 1800s in order to get the context just right. Um, you see, there are many, many things wrong with communism, but it has at least one particular evil, one particular characteristic that makes it impossible to succeed, can't possibly work, it's impossible to work, and it's impossible to accept. And that characteristic is that it is a lie. It is a lie and built on lies. So in order to get the context right, what I really need is to explain why the fact that it is a lie matters. Why it really matters that it's a system that is a lie from one end all the way to the other. I need to get to the context of the lie itself. And to do that, as I said, I, I need to go a little bit before 1848. So how far back am I going to go? In the beginning was <laughs> the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through Him, and in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light that enlightens men came into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, but the world knew him not. He came to his own home, and his people received him not. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God. Born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, and from his fullness have we received grace upon grace, grace and truth through Jesus Christ our Lord. <coughs> The Lord himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We talk about giving our word. What does that mean? We underscore that we're telling the truth. What the church teaches, what the Lord revealed, he is the word of God. He's underscoring. That's God's word. It's my word, says God the Father. It's the truth. It's not nice. It's not convenient. It's not comforting. It's not pleasant. It may be those things, but there's another point. It is the truth. We are creatures of the Father created through the Son, as St. John teaches. And we are but expressions, therefore, of the divine word. We are temples of the Holy Spirit, the love of the Father and the Son, who has spoken through the prophets, who can neither deceive nor be deceived and who literally animates his holy church against which the gates of hell shall never prevail. Have we ever stopped to plumb what this means? 
We are created to be vessels, mirrors, transmitters, if you will, of the truth. Our very nature revolts at lies, as it might if we were forced to eat spoilt food. Every lie, every single lie, is a sinful profanation of man and of his sacred vocation. Yes, that's what it is. It also deforms him. Every time we lie, every time we accept a lie, every time we hear a lie and let it sort of land somewhere inside our psyche, we're deformed in some little way. Um, lies twist us into shapes that, whatever else they may be, they're not human. They are not the image and likeness of the Lord, who can neither deceive nor be deceived. Have you noticed how uncomfortable people get when a lie is in play? How quickly there's a resort to euphemism and generality, and even outright turning away, that is, ignoring whatever might be in play altogether. They're not babies, they're products of conception, or far better, POCs. <laughs> um, you know, I, have, I often wanted to, you know, one of my sisters on giving birth, oh, you have a POC, isn't that great? Um, you know, it's like, oh, it is. It's just, I'm sorry, that's, there's a technical medical word for that, and that is gross. Um, you know, stop that. You know, talk, be honest. Don't, don't resort to some kind of vague abstraction in an effort to hide the truth. Doubtless, you have been aware of the very disturbing videos that recently have come out about the sale of human body parts. Uh, those videos speak powerfully and truthfully about abortion and the culture of death. Um, but you could look from one end of the country to the other, and you could barely find it in any newspaper or any of the mainstream media at all. You wouldn't find it even reported. Far better to just don't put it there, not to put it there. Be quiet, shut up, it'll go away. Um, uh, it's almost like something that a friend of mine used to say. Shut up, he explained. Um, you know, that's, the, that's the answer. Be quiet. Don't say the truth. Um, the truth is very uncomfortable from those videos, and so, as with our first parents in the garden, it's much easier to hide. It's easier to hide from the Lord of truth, who is also the Lord of life. So what then if you have an entire society built on lies, on deceit, on falsehood? Uh, this talk uh, owes a great debt to John O'Sullivan and a book that he wrote. I'll show it to you. I'm not here to sell it, and I certainly don't get a commission from it. Uh, but it's, a, it's an excellent book, The President, the Pope, and the Prime Minister, Three Who Changed the World. Creatures from the Black Lagoon of the 1800s, Ludwig Feuerbach, Friedrich Engels, Friedrich Nietzsche, and Karl Marx, wholly ignorant of economics, of history, of the nature of man, of revelation, any sense of the divine, um, that is wholly ignorant of the truth about man and his divine creator and his eternal vocation. Wholly ignorant of that, tossed their ignorance, 
their atheism, their arrogance, their blindness, and above all, their envy into a seething cauldron, and they produced a witch's brew, which is called socialism. It's tyrannical to a degree never before seen in the world and responsible for more deaths and more misery than anything else that has ever been. Uh, this thing is what seized power as a result of a gross uh, mistake by the German high command in 1917, in late 1917, in Russia. Uh, it began a reign of sheer terror and a series of bloodbaths uh, that continued more or less unabated until just about 1960 when it, they became less frequent. Um, uh, there were fewer people uh, to get. Um, they didn't always shoot people in the Soviet Union. Uh, bullets cost money. Um, uh, one of the things they like to do is to starve them to death. That's always fun. Um, uh, uh, they had propaganda films. They were excellent propagandists always. They had propaganda films in which they would show farmers. You know, there was a famine in the country. Uh, there used to be a joke uh, that I always found amusing. What would happen if the communists took over the Sahara? And the answer is nothing much for about 20 years. Then there'd be a shortage of sand. Um, the well, promptly, you know, when they, we sort of, farmers would farm and they would just take their crop. Well, farmers began to farm less or they began to do other things with it. And so they were accused of being responsible for a famine that was besetting the country. And so they sent film crews in as the army would come and they would find all this hoarded grain that farmers had. Well, in the United States we have another word for that hoarded grain. It was the seed grain for next year. You know, you, you need to keep some and plant it, because if not, you don't have a crop next year. hate to mention this to you, but if, if you don't know that, I don't recommend you go into the farming business. Um, well, that's what happened. And of course, there was a colossal famine. Millions upon millions of people died. What did the Western world do? Well, it did one very important thing. The New York Times sent a reporter, Walter Durante, no relation to James, um, Walter Durante, um, who reported that he'd, he's heard all this stuff about a famine. He never ate better in all of his life. Um, he said he's seen the future and it works. He received a Pulitzer Prize. It's still on the list of Pulitzer Prizes that the uh, New York Times crows about having received. It's a, t a total lie. He was present, he witnessed one of the most appalling man-made famines in the world. And he said, Nothing whatsoever, because when you live about, when, you're, when your only goal is ideology, then facts are inconvenient, you know? Lie about them or shut up about them, because that's the way to get to where we need to go. Don't confuse me with the facts. Um, at first, civilized nations refused to treat with the Soviet Union. Uh, they recognized them as a band of criminals who had taken over a, uh, you know, an entire country and they sort of thought to not trade with it, not have any kind of diplomatic relations with it, leave it where it is and hope that it would die a miserable death as it richly deserved to. Um, that changed um, 
Franklin Delano Roosevelt under pressure from the New York Times and also inclined to uh, recognize the Soviet Union to show that he had done a bold diplomatic initiative. Um, he recognized the Soviet Union formally and he began a few aid uh, relations with the uh, Soviet Union. Uh, this is during the time that there were the dreadful purge trials under Stalin. Um, you know, it's funny because even when you try to suppress the truth, somehow or other it has a way of getting out. And so um, in one of them, you know, who was responsible for the you know, conspiracies that never exist? And, you know, who shot this person? And, you know, one of the witnesses pointed to the guards <laughs> in the trial. Well, everyone is killed because um, that way you don't have these embarrassing statements that come out. Um, the, you know, we forget the Soviet Union was an ally of uh, their, the National Socialists in Germany. Um, and together they carved up Poland and Lithuania and Estonia and Latvia. Uh, they sliced off a piece of Hungary, excuse me, a, a piece of uh, uh, Finland as well. Uh, and uh, after the, uh, Hitler turned on Stalin, um, Stalin uh, sent the Red Army against the Germans. And along the way, he conquers um, Bulgaria, Romania, Serbia, Albania, Croatia, Slovenia, Hungary. Um, the rest of Poland, uh, East Germany, that is about a third of it. Um, and within the next few years, the Red Army goes on to sweep through, or, or its allies go on to sweep through China, half of Korea, and half of Vietnam. Um, President Roosevelt at Yalta uh, essentially surrenders what then began being known as Eastern Europe, used to be known as Central Europe, uh, Eastern Europe uh, into the hands of the Soviet Union. Now, it wasn't quite a, well, that's yours, but it was sort of like, well, it's your zone of influence and, uh, you know, there'd be 10% influence of the United States and then 70 or 80% influence by the Soviet Union and this kind of thing. Because you see, the problem with the Roosevelt administration is it treated the Soviet Union as though it were just a normal country. You know, uh, like, you know, we, we all re remember the British Empire, right? It's like Britain. They, all, they, all they wanted to do was to have more land, and so we just have to deal with them because they're just another country that has, uh, you know, territorial interests or territorial expansion in mind. But it isn't just another country. It's a thoroughly rotten system. It, it wasn't normal in any sense of the word normal. And treating it as though it was is buying into the lie. Um, the Soviet Union was not a genuine, real, a genuine real country. It was, in some, a criminal enterprise. Um, I love the euphemisms that I used to hear when I was growing up. They would talk about this leader of the Soviet Union. Leader? His bayonets were pointed towards his own people. How did he lead them? In a Soviet dictator, maybe. Um, but leader? Really? Um, after the Soviet Union got the bomb, it was American policy and, and in some ways Western European policy, largely as a result of American influence, to contain the Soviet Union, to keep it from spreading, especially in Europe, and to defend Western Europe. But still, they couldn't shake the notion that the Soviet Union might be aggressive and hostile, but it was just another country, 
that had territorial ambitions, it had security fears in the way that, I don't know, Canada might. Um, but the Soviet Union wasn't just Canada. And this is the, the problem that you face over and over and over and over. When um, Chamberlain, who's British Prime Minister in the 1930s, when he was dealing with um, the Germans, he knew them to be national socialists. And so what he just imagined in his head that he was dealing with members of the British Socialist Party on the other side, just a little more aggressive. But of course, Hitler wasn't just a member of the British Socialist Party on the other side. He wasn't a laborite. You know, he was a member of a criminal enterprise. And so, you know, when you don't recognize what your enemy is, as opposed to what your enemy wants to do, when you don't recognize that, you're doomed to fail. Um, the evidence is always in front of us. First of all, all the people who talked about the glories of the Soviet Union, um, uh, they never lived there. And they somehow never wanted to live there. They were happy to live here. Um, I, whenever people say, oh, well, Cuba is such a great place, I invite them to go and stay. Um, no, really, I hope they enjoy themselves. Um, and I mean that with, from the bottom of my heart. I hope they enjoy themselves there. Um, we also should have known better because the people of the East constantly were trying to break out. Hungary famously, gloriously in 1956, in Prague in 1968, on both of those occasions, the Soviets send in tanks and they crush a rebellion. Um, they crush it with terrible bloodshed. In the 1950s and later in 1970, under Gomułka in Poland, there are uprisings which are brutally suppressed. But we still treat it, you know, it's like, well, you know, the people support their government in the same way, you know. And, you know, there's always some kind of opposition. You have Republicans, you have Democrats, you know, they don't always like what the president's doing. And it's the same over there. But it's not. Never was. It was a fantasy to imagine that it was. Gradually, over the course of the 1960s, particularly the late 60s and the early 70s, we have a shift in the thinking in Western Europe and in the United States. There's a development, uh, there, or there's a movement uh, in many ways, um, uh, either following Saul Alinsky uh, or at least being like Saul Alinsky. The new left is sometimes what it's called, the student, Students for a Democratic Society. Um, uh, one of the things they pushed, uh, they, were, they were very different from leftist movements from before. You know, for one, there's no such thing as truth. Now, of course, that itself is a truth statement, right? It's a claim to be true. You know, it's like, there are no absolutes. Well, isn't that an absolute statement? Isn't that a problem with your thinking? Um, okay, well, there is one. Well, I guess that means that there are two now. <laughs> Wait, there are three. Um, um, you can see how it's a problem, and it's a pretty basic problem. Small children can figure it out. Um, but no, 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 no. There's no such thing as truth. Well, you know, there might actually be one, and that is that the U.S. is bad. That's a truth. Um, they believe that one. Um, and in any event, we're certainly no better than the communists, who after all are trying to build a just and equal society. And I say to myself, what evidence is there for that? What evidence is there for the, the, for the, for the proposition that anyone over there is trying to build, first of all, an equal society? Really? <laughs> Members of the party were a lot more equal than everybody else. And a just society? 
The joke used to be that in Russia you had the right to a trial at which you shall be found guilty. You know, the state would give you a lawyer and his job was to fix your sentence to be as high as possible. He was your lawyer. I hate to think of what the prosecutor wanted to do. Um, uh, if your operating principle is envy, and that is the operating principle of the new left, then uh, you go for equality no matter what, even if it means the equality of the cemetery. Um, I'm reminded of something, uh, the Paris, in Paris, uh, in the 19th century, they built a beautiful opera house, the Opéra, famous opera in Paris. And under François Mitterrand, a socialist president, um, they, they built a new one, a new opera house. You see, there was a problem with the old one. Uh, it was built in the 19th century, it's got a lot of columns around the edges, and people who sat on the outside had a partially obstructed views of the stage. Now, what this meant was that poor people could go to the opera and listen to some of the best opera in the world. They'd have partially obstructed views, but it would only be a few francs uh, to get in to see the opera. No, 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 no. Everybody has to have excellent views. So they built a magnificent opera house. And the instructions were put in that there, no seats could be better than any others. Of course, obviously, the ones in front were going to see better, but you couldn't hear better. Despite their very best efforts, there are a few seats where you could hear better. And so they put baffles in the ceiling to make those a little worse <laughs> so that everybody could be equal. And now, seats are so expensive that the poor never go. Um, a triumph of leftist politics. Um, Woohoo! we win. All of this kind of thinking was not what people in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, early 60s were used to. It was new. It was different. And this sea change witnessed in the 1970s, what's been called the McGovernization of the Democratic Party, the collapse of South Vietnam, uh, the utter failure of President Johnson's war on poverty, the rise of an underclass and crime. I think the year was 1972 or three, where it was determined that in uh, the major metropolitan areas of the United States, one third of the people had been victimized by crime, one third. One of every three people had been a victim of crime. Um, uh, illegitimacy rates skyrocketed, flight from the inner cities, divorce, drug abuse. There was a rise of terrorism. Uh, uh, there was the IRA, the Symbionese Liberation Army, the Weather Underground, the Bader Meinhof Gang in, uh, in Germany. Anwar Sadat was killed, Lord Mountbatten of Burma was killed along with some of his grandchildren, Aldo Moro, four U.S. ambassadors, two prime ministers, um, the Israeli athletes in 1972 in the Munich Olympics, uh, OPEC quadrupled its oil prices, uh, there was the strategic growth of the Soviet Union either directly through an invasion of Afghanistan or through its proxies, the Cubans in Angola and Mozambique. Uh, there were proxies, mostly Cuban in Nicaragua, and El Salvador, and Chile. Um, uh, the Soviet Union placed SS-20 missiles, which were highly accurate in Eastern Europe. Uh, there were incursions in the Yemen, as well as in Ethiopia. Uh, there was a sense that the West was collapsing. There was a sense that, you know, we're... I mean, we all remember, it's funny, we remember it, but he never actually said it. Uh, President Carter in his famous Malaise speech, he, he didn't actually use the word in the speech, but 
It certainly was the flavor of the speech. Um, uh, but, you know, what are you going to do? What are, what are we supposed to do when faced with all this? The United States began to see itself, certainly the left saw the United States as a helpless giant. There was what we called stagflation, which, you know, sta economic stagnation plus wild inflation that at one point was higher than 20%, or interest rates anyway were higher than 20%. Um, President Nixon imposed price controls, which is the last thing you would have expected from anybody on the right. It's a very leftist thing to do. Um, the Club of Rome predicts, like Malthus, that there would be shortages of everything. Uh, Professor Robert Lecockman of New York University said that it was settled science. We've heard that before. Um, we still hear it, don't we? <laughs> that the era of growth is over. The era of limits is upon us. There was despair. St. John Paul II would later refer to this as the culture of death. Um, Paul Ehrlich's population bomb. You know, grossly wrong in all of it. I mean, I encourage you to go read it. It's great. It's hilariously funny. It's particularly funny if you have about two gin and tonics beforehand. It's, <laughs> it is a scream as to all the things that are going to happen. I don't know if you know this, but you're all dead. Um, uh, Hal Lindsey's The Late Great Planet Earth. These are wildly popular books. Um, millions would die in worldwide famine. And we were also going to have the coming ice age, which is embarrassing for later when they said that we were going to die of global warming. So now it's climate change. In any event, the important thing is we're all going to die. And in, the ironic thing is that's actually true. That part is true. <laughs> President Ford continues Nixon's policy of detente. And Nixon's policy of detente is based on um, the thinking of his national security advisor, who was later President Ford's Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger. Henry Kissinger's doctoral thesis was later published as a book, A World Restored. And it was, it, it's frankly an excellent book. It's an excellent book describing how uh, Prince von Metternich attempted to control and restrain Napoleon. And it tells you so much about Henry Kissinger. He, you know, Napoleon was the, you know, the up-and-coming guy. And so you had how is an established, stable state to try to control this wild man. It also made clear that Henry Kissinger thought that we were the sort of old and stable. And communism is the new, fresh, vigorous, which has it exactly backward. Leonid Brezhnev was vigorous. Leonid Brezhnev wasn't vigorous when he was born. <laughs> Um, President Ford refused to see Alexander Solzhenitsyn. When Solzhenitsyn was finally vomited out of the Soviet Union, this great and heroic man, and the President of the United States refused even to speak with him in private. And in his private papers, President Ford insults him. It, it's extremely disappointing to read it. Extremely disappointing. President Carter, he saw his program as being one of accommodating historical trends that he thought were inevitable. They're coming and they're likely to win and all I gotta do is to try to save the best deal I can and to make it go as slowly as possible. Um, he wanted to get the Soviet Union, if possible, to commit to stability because then they wouldn't attack and then they wouldn't go all over the place. Um, he never had any thought of taking the battle there. 
never had any confidence, I think, that in fact, well, <laughs> as, as President Reagan was asked once, you know, what his strategy was in the Cold War, he says, we win, they lose. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and they're simplistic. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. As simplistic it might be, simple it certainly is, victorious it absolutely was. We win, they lose. You know, what part of this? It was difficult to understand. You know, he had confidence in our system. President Carter, poor man, did not. Um, now, you know, if you had his mindset, well, he was probably doing as best he could. But that if is huge. Um, uh, he's the one who signed the Helsinki Accords with Leonid Brezhnev. Um, America and some needed to adapt to new realities. The American century, such as it was, was over. And it was over about 50 years early. Um, we had to give, get rid of what was called our inordinate fear of communism. Um, and we had to work with them. They're just one system. They happened to differ from us. And then at the very end of his administration, the Soviets invade Afghanistan. And uh, the Shah falls in Iran, largely pushed by his administration. Um, and uh, a short time later, the revolutionaries in Iran um, take a hostage a large number of American personnel uh, in the embassy. Uh, I think the technical medical term for this whole ball of wax is yuck. <laughs> um, let me now turn to three people. There's a fellow named Karol Wojtyła. Karol, he was named Karol, uh, which is Charles, uh, because his father had been an Austrian army officer and he was named for the emperor under whom he served. Charles of Austria-Hungary the last person that St. John Paul II beatified. Blessed Charles of Austria-Hungary. The Pope's own baptismal name uh, came from a man whom he beatified. I think to myself, is this a great country or what? I mean, that's just beautiful. Um, I'm not going to give you the biography of these people. There's not enough time. Uh, he was a young auxiliary bishop of Krakow in 1958. He becomes full archbishop in 1964. He had suffered terribly under the Nazis, under the National Socialists, and he suffered even worse under the International Socialists. Um, he adopted a policy that he later described as fortiter in re, suaviter in modo. Strong in terms of what we want to do, soft in terms of how we're going to get it. Cultural rather than political resistance. You know, they wanted to do, they're trying to take this or that away. Okay, but we still want to build a church. They want to do this, blah, 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 blah. Yes, but we have to have that Corpus Christi procession. We, no, 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 no. Yes, but we're going to have the play anyway in the church parking lot. Um, you know, it's, it's that kind of thing. As long as we keep the idea that there is a truth, that there's something else out there, that the party doesn't speak for you or for me, and even if it were to, it doesn't say everything. There are other things beyond the imagination of the party. Um, in Vatican II, he was seen as one of the sort of young and more progressive sorts of bishops um, by people who I think didn't know him very well. Uh, 
he was also always, always, always of a very sturdy, sturdy orthodoxy. Uh, orthodoxy when it came to church teaching, when it came to evangelization in the world. That is, it doesn't become, we're not supposed to water down our teachings. We might have to learn other people's language, uh, which doesn't necessarily mean French, German, Spanish, but also how they talk. Uh, we might say what their media are, although nowadays the newspapers would say what their media is, but uh, what their media are, uh, and we might have to learn that, but it really is nothing more than how do I become more effective at teaching the truth? Not how do I change the truth in order to suit what might be popular. Um, more and more over the course of the 1960s, particularly when he made known uh, to Paul VI before the encyclical Humanae Vitae was written, uh, that he was thoroughly in favor of the conclusion that the Holy Father ultimately reached. Um, uh, he was seen as being way too conservative, particularly after Cardinal Wyszynski, the primate of Poland, was asked, how come you know, masses are still in Latin in Poland? What's going on over there? Haven't you all implemented Vatican II? And Cardinal Wyszynski said to the Western, uh, Western newspaperman, he says, in Poland we see Vatican II as a call to renewal of devotion to St. Stanislaus. Um, <laughs> um, uh, in short, he was uh, fingered as being a conservative. And later, when it came to the conclave, far too conservative ever to be a pope, to be elected. Margaret Hilda Roberts, as she was known before she married Dennis Thatcher, came from a devoutly Methodist family. Her father was a lay preacher. Um, uh, her Bible was heavily underlined. Her so was her Methodist catechism. You know, I, we, m most of us anyway, I suppose, are, are Catholics in this room. Um, so, you know, when we, we're a little bit of a disadvantage when we consider how it is that people in other uh, communions may be, uh, may practice and live their faith. You know, we, we sort of know how to live as Catholics. And so other things are a little more, are, are different. Uh, one person who was very close to her said that um, her Methodism was short on theology, uh, uh, but hot, long on Christian prayer and Christian action based on Christian principle. Um, she didn't like to talk a whole lot about God because she thought that was a little bit of trumpeting. She wasn't scared to talk about God, but she didn't talk much about the Lord. Um, she simply said, I have to act. I have to do. Um, she had been uh, in uh, Sir Edward Heath's cabinet when he was prime minister. She had been the minister of education, and she had been a loyal cabinet minister. Um, after his government fell, as a result of losing a, vo a vote of confidence in the uh, House of, of Commons, in 1974, uh, there was a conservative party uh, meeting, and at that meeting, um, she made a pitch to become head of the party. She pushed Edward Heath off to the side, he lost, and she won, to everybody's surprise so that if the conservatives ever were to win a majority, she would be the next prime minister. Um, it was believed, however, that she could never be head of the party because she was too conservative, and when she won, they said she'll never be able to be prime minister because she's way too conservative. 
Ronald Reagan, the son of a Catholic father and a Disciples of Christ mother. He has one brother. That brother is reared as a Catholic. The compromise was that one would be Catholic and the other would not be. He was the one who was not. Um, his, uh, he had served two terms as governor of California. He had spoken in the 1960s uh, and, and late in the mid-70s, he had spoken all over the country on various conservative principles. And one principle was always very firm. Communism is wrong. Communism is bad for people. It's not merely, it's a threat to the security interests of the United States. No, it's evil. It's wrong. It's bad. He spoke in unqualified moral language. Um, he had the pleasure of meeting uh, Mrs. Thatcher in 1974. He liked her. She liked him. Uh, and she noted that he favored ideological resistance to Soviet communism rather than accommodation. Uh, when people listened to him talking, they said that this was nonsense and this was dangerous. It could lead to nuclear war and, and nuclear disaster. In some, he was too conservative. He was not in the political mainstream in the United States. On October 16, 1978, after the death of John Paul I, um, the cardinals met in conclave. Cardinal Ratzinger issued a homily or made, gave them a homily uh, on the fact that we had come together and sought to do God's will and we had elected a pope. And, the Holy and he says that God in heaven was pleased with our decision and then he was pleased to take him away. So we have to ask ourselves, what is God's will for us at this moment? And he said, could it be that we are called to, and I'll quote, the possibility of doing something new? Uh, a few ballots later, uh, Karol Wojtyła is elected pope. Um, uh, in Poland, the news was suppressed by the party for several hours as they figured out what to do with this. Um, when the news finally got out, the church bells rang for hours across the entire country. Stanislaw Kania, who was secretary of the Polish Communist Party, was the first to hear the news, and I'm happy to say that history records what his statement was when he heard it. Holy Mother of God. <laughs> You can't make this stuff up. <laughs> that was October 16, 1978. On the 4th of May, 1979, after a three or four week campaign in uh, Britain, at which the Labor Party was savaged because there had been a paralyzing series of strikes, the government was seen as being completely impotent. The Tories are voted into power, and Margaret Thatcher, of all unlikely people, becomes prime minister. She walks into 10 Downing Street, which is where the Prime Minister uh, lives and has offices on the 4th of May, 1979. Um, Ronald Reagan uh, called her that very day, but the operators in Downing Street had never heard of him, <laughs> so they, they didn't put the call through. And when she found out, the next day she called him. Um, uh, on the 20th of January, 1981, Ronald Reagan became president of these United States. All three of these people saw the lie that was communism. Communism did not let man be man. 
He was not free to serve and worship God. He was not free to put the fruits of his labor to the service of his family and to the service of Almighty God. He was not free to rear his children in the sight and in the worship of Almighty God. You may reflect on whether or not we're approaching such an age nowadays ourselves. I invite you to reflect. Seventy days after he was elected, the 30th of March, 1981, after he was inaugurated, the 30th of March, John Hinckley uh, shot him. We do not, most people have the impression that it wasn't that serious. Sure, he'd been shot and it had entered his lungs or whatever, but, you know, come on. He, after all, he walked into the hospital. He collapsed just after going in through the doors. He wasn't sure he could make it, but he said no. When they were going to carry him in, he said, no, I have to walk. And so he walked in excruciating pain uh, into the hospital. We remember the jokes. When his wife showed up, honey, I forgot to duck. <laughs> he passed out, and when he woke up, one of the nurses was holding his hand, and he said, does Nancy know about this? <laughs> and on, when he, he again, he lost consciousness frequently, and before he went into the operating room, he woke up and saw the surgeons, and they said, we're going to operate on you, sir. And he said, I hope you're all Republicans. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it, we, we remember the jokes, um, but what it was was terrific grace under pressure. And I'm going to underscore that by reading to you what he later said. When he realized that he had been shot, this was before his surgery, he said, I focused on the tiled ceiling and prayed, but I realized that I could not ask for God's help while at the same time, I felt hatred for the mixed-up young man who had shot me. Isn't that the meaning of lost sheep? We're all God's children and therefore beloved by him. I began to pray for his soul and that he would somehow find his way back into the fold. Ronald Reagan, when he returned to the White House, he wrote into his diary, I know that God spared me for a purpose. He knew that he had a mission. We might say as Catholics, he had a vocation. It was a vocation to do the will of God within the office that he had been given by God. He was convinced that God had spared him for a purpose. A very short time later, on the 13th of May of that same year, Mehmet Ali Akya shot the Holy Father. On the, on the feast of Our Lady of Fatima, he shot the Holy Father. Again. It looks like, you know, well, the Holy Father was seriously wounded and everything. He was millimeters from death. Had it gone not even that much more, it would have uh, ruptured a major artery within his system and he would have died. Uh, but it didn't. As he himself said, one hand fired the gun, another guided the bullet. Incidentally, on the 12th of October, 1984, an IRA bomb went off in a hotel at which Margaret Thatcher and the leaders of the Conservative Party in Britain were all staying. People died who were two rooms away from her. But because of the way the structural supports in the building were done, purely by coincidence, if you wish, or by divine providence, if you wish otherwise, uh, she wasn't even injured. But people two rooms away died. Um, 
All three believed that Soviet communism needed to be rolled back, not so much because it was Russian, not so much because it was imperialist, but because it was evil. It was built on lies. And how do you do that? Their plan, and it was funny, it wasn't like it was the plan of all three of them together and they knocked heads. Margaret Thatcher never met the Holy Father. They corresponded. She wanted to meet him, but because of the war uh, in, in the Falklands, she, when the Holy Father went to England, uh, so that there would be no embarrassment to the Holy Father, because he, of course he had a flock in Argentina, she said that no one in the government would meet him, so that it wouldn't be a political meeting. It was a big sacrifice for her because she was trying to make a pitch for Catholic voters. Um, one of her father's ancestors is an O'Sullivan. Uh, she's got Catholics in there. Uh, but um, she never did actually meet him. But as I said, they did correspond. Um, the principal bases of this uh, rollback of the Soviet Union was the recovery of the West. Economic recovery, but also social recovery, confidence. Um, cultural pushback against this creature from the East. They all saw that Poland was the key because Poland was the weak point in the Soviet Empire. Um, the Pope's first visit to Poland, he made three, was on the, from the 2nd of June to the 10th of June, 1979. And he was able to show the world, Ronald Reagan, by the way, various witnesses said that he watched the television, you know, the television showed the Holy Father there, and he, tears were streaming down. He says, look at them. They're his people. They're not the communist people. They're his people. He showed that there was a real Poland underneath this fake one. And that real Poland was a lot more interesting and alive as opposed to the sclerotic monstrosity on, on, on top that purported to speak for the real Poles. Um, millions upon millions, one-third of the population of Poland actually saw him in person. God knows how many of the others saw him on TV. Um, uh, at the time, leftist Catholics in the United States and in Western Europe were upset at the Pope because of his stance. I love it when they say that. It's as though the Holy Father says, hello, or you know, his stance on sexual rights and on liberation theology. The Western media were stunned. How could this guy be popular? in a country where the government is all about fairness and equality. Um, you know, and, and you know, none of this Nash, you know, none of this sort of rich people stuff. Why would the happy citizens of a socialist country whose government was convinced, was committed to progress, support such a man? Um, and why would they want to be, of all things, Catholics? The answer was given by a minor who was asked by a reporter, why would you, you know, why do you want to be a Christian? Why do you want to be a Catholic? <laughs> he was Polish, and his answer was thumping. To praise the Holy Mother of God and to spite the bastards. <laughs> you know, I, that's one where I have to say, yeah. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> um, the pushback on all fronts, and this is when I say the braiding, I'm just going to give you a few vignettes. 
um, of different things that different of each one of these people were doing at different times. They, it wasn't so much that they were a hive, you know, all conspiring with one another, but they all were going towards the same end and they looked for every opportunity to do something. Every single one. So at a meeting with Alexei Kosygin, who then was the Soviet Prime Minister in June of 1979, uh, Mrs. in Tokyo, Mrs. Thatcher uh, agreed to meet with him because he'd wanted to talk to her and he wanted to talk to her about disarmament. Um, she said, okay, but before we talk about disarmament, I'd like to talk about those Vietnamese boat people. You know, the people who are throwing themselves onto rafts, you know, basically little cigar boxes into the sea in an effort to get out. How come you aren't, you know, how come this sort of thing is happening? And uh, Kosygin responded, they're all drug addicts and criminals. And he said, is communist, she, she answered, is communism so bad? that a million people have to take drugs and steal in order to live? Um, Kosygin terminated the meeting. They just never got to the disarmament part. You know, bummer. After the Holy Father's um, uh, trip through Poland, Poland was heading for a crack up. On the 7th of August, 1980, Anna Valentinovich was dismissed from the Lenin shipyards in Danzig for stealing. She hadn't been stealing. What she'd been trying to do was to put together uh, enough wax to create a memorial candle for workers from the Lenin shipyards who had been shot by the police in 1970. Um, and she wanted to have a 10-year memorial candle lit. Well, that led to a series of strikes. And when the unions, which represented the government, said, no, no, we got to call off the strike. Lech Wałęsa stepped onto a crane and said, no. On the 17th of August, his um, parish priest, Henrik Jabłonski, uh, was invited to come in and celebrate mass. 4,000 attended and another 2,000 outside the gates. On the 18th, the workers demanded through loudspeakers, which they broadcast outside the shipyards, the right to have a union that represented themselves and wasn't imposed by the party. Between the 20th and the 27th, Cardinal Vyshinsky and the Vatican issued a series of statements. And on the 31st, um, the government folded and entered uh, into what's known in history as the Gdańsk or Danzig Accords, where they, for the first time, allowed an independent institution to exist within a communist country, an independent union, solidarity. Um, solidarity led to everybody all over the country wanting to join that union, including farmers. Rural solidarity, they called it, you know. Um, this was a total disaster for the, for the government. And eventually, the, Soviet, uh, the Polish army, perhaps trying to forestall an invasion by the Soviets, although I'm not sure that there would have been one. I don't know that they would have had the money uh, to do it. Um, there was a declaration uh, of martial law uh, by General Jaruzelski in Poland, and the Union was shut down. Hundreds of people were arrested. They closed the shipyards. Um, the United States government begins a covert policy of supporting in every way possible every private institution it can in Poland, including the Catholic Church. The Vatican, through every conceivable means all over the place. In England, the same. Uh, British um, 
uh, intelligence forces do the same thing. But also, she encourages all kinds of private, Lady uh, Margaret Thatcher encourages all kinds of private people uh, to uh, support the um, movement, the, the labor movement in Poland. And so what you had is Lady Salisbury, the Marchness of Salisbury, Lady Beaumont, Lady Ryder, a whole series of aristocrats. And let me tell you, I've seen photographs of some of these ladies. Do not get in their way. <laughs> um, uh, at Hatfield House, which is one of the magnificent house of the Marquises of Salisbury, they host a party. They invite the Prince and Princess of Wales who came. At the party, they raised 250,000 pounds. They collected untold amounts of materiel, and, and Lady Salisbury and Lady Beaumont themselves drove the trucks into Poland. I wouldn't have gotten in front of them either. <laughs> um, later, the Holy Father invited all of these ladies and their husbands to a private mass with him. They're Anglicans, by the way, at the Vatican. He's buried in the chapel where he celebrated that mass. Um, you have all kinds of things. The CIA director, William Casey, a Catholic, well-known to people here in the diocese. The ambassador to the Vatican, Reagan is the one who opened relations with the Vatican. Vernon Walters, also Catholics. They told the president from the beginning, or their advice to the president was, that we should show our hand to the Pope. You know, let's let him see our intelligence reports. The Pope you know, real, you know, he, he learned a great deal of information from these intelligence reports, which were constantly shown to him. He met regularly with these people uh, in the Vatican. And what's more, he became thoroughly persuaded, particularly after he met with Ronald Reagan, that Ronald Reagan really did believe in the liberation of Poland. These weren't just words. Yes, 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 oh, the free country, blah, blah, uh-uh. He wanted them free. What's more, he didn't think that it was a good idea to live, you know, mutual assured destruction, to live in an era of total, you know, what's going to happen to, uh-uh. I want to get rid of nuclear weapons because I want to get rid of the threat on the other side. Thank you very much. His policy, and ultimately the policy of Lady Thatcher in, in Britain, was to bankrupt the Soviet Union. At the time, we believed their statistics, academics, the CIA. Oh, well, you know, this is their gross domestic products. They tell us that's what it is, grossly overinflated. And this is how much they spend on, uh, on military, uh, on the military. At the time, the CIA said it's probably about 16%. Uh, Reagan's security staff thought it was probably closer to 25%. It was closer to 30. No country could sustain that. No country could sustain it. Uh, Ronald Reagan spoke uh, in his speeches of the evil empire, of the march of freedom leaving Marxism-Leninism on the ash heap of history as it has left other tyrannies. He said these, he, he spoke of Soviet communism as, as being an evil, um, an unfortunate chapter in, in history whose last pages were being written even as he spoke. And at the time, the press, the academy, the media, everybody, that's simplistic, it's stupid, it's blind, it's warmongering, it's going to get us into war, uh, we're going to die in a nuclear holocaust. One of the things that's truly amusing about this is that the left has always attacked using moral language. Racism, militarism, exploitation, neo-colonialism. For the first time in the person of the Holy Father, Ronald Reagan, and Margaret Thatcher, they were turning around 
talking about the left in the same exact way. Wow, let me tell you what you look like. I don't think you've seen a mirror in a long time. Um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, by the way, I'll just mention, he used to talk about uh, his, um, how in the Soviet Union, if you were to ask, you know, at the top of it, you were to say, how many trucks have been produced in such and such factory? He says that the guy at the top had no idea. And why did he have no idea? Because the person below him had inflated the figures to what he thought he would like, and the person below him had inflated the figure. You know, it was a lie upon a lie upon a lie upon all the way down. They might have produced three trucks. 300, sir. You know, they had no idea. No one knew. The chickens had come to, uh, home to roost. Uh, there's a, a joke about uh, uh, Russia under Andropov, I think it was. Uh, it was the, the difference between a Soviet optimist and a Soviet pessimist. Um, the Soviet pessimist says, oh my gosh, this is the worst. You know, we've never seen anything so terrible. We can hardly stand it. This is the very worst that could ever be. And the Soviet optimist, no, it could get much worse. Uh, <laughs> um, Gorbachev later said that the Soviet economy had been stagnant, 0% growth for more than 20 years once the official figures were actually corrected to reflect reality. He also said that they had to be corrected to correct the artificial increase in the demand for alcohol. Um, you know, it's hard to think about who was, you know, Brezhnev, Andropov, Chernyenko. I mean, these, these are like picture people from the swamp pits. You know, Stalin, I mean, oh, look at that. that. Those are the ones who rule our country. Yippee. I mean, every one of them is more criminal than the last. Awful. Um, the martial law in Poland went from bad to worst. There was the murder of Father Jerzy Popiuszko. Um, the first dignitary to put flowers on his grave came from Britain. Margaret Thatcher sent him. Um, eventually, there was a crack up in Prague where Wacław Havel, influenced by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, Cardinal Tomaszek, uh, they were supposed to have a uh, a big Catholic gathering outside the city of Prague, and the, um, uh, the Soviets said, yes, let's have a peace uh, congress. And uh, so they showed up with all these posters for this peace congress, and the people started shouting, we want mass. Um, you know, not, not a peace congress. Um, what finally, I mean, other things that happened, I mean, there's a, the, the resolve that was shown by Margaret Thatcher in the Falklands, uh, by President Reagan with Grenada saying, we're, I don't think we're going there. We're going to stop this right here. No, we're pushing back. The Soviet Union realized it could not keep up. And when the president uh, became, was briefed on what became known as the Strategic Defense Initiative, Star Wars, the, the, the use of ballistic defense you know, to stop incoming missiles, the Soviet Union was terrified. We now have the documents. They said, we can't pay for it. We simply cannot pay. And so they were desperate in Geneva and later in Reykjavik to get Reagan to take Star Wars off the table. And he refused. And moments after he refused, the Soviet Union collapses like a house of cards. Um, uh, what we see here is that, uh, you know, Nobody in the academy, no one in the press foresaw that any of this would happen. 
You know, they were all like, well, the idea that somehow the Soviet Union is just going to collapse is ridiculous. It was, it was unthinkable. You, you have to be living in a fantasy to imagine this kind of thing. But he said, who would want to live there? He looked at the Soviet Union and saw that it was filled with millions of our allies. He looked at Eastern Europe and he said it's filled with millions of people who want to be like us. Same with Margaret Thatcher and the same with St. John Paul. Um, the, a small bureaucratic mistake, misunderstanding of an order, led to the East, uh, East German guards not stopping people from crossing into the West over the Berlin Wall. And eventually it turned into hundreds and they couldn't fire on them. Um, for those of us who lived at that time, it was amazing. How could the evil empire simply collapse? I mean, it, it, it didn't even collapse with an explosion. There wasn't sort of a hiccup. It just collapsed. There was no there there. Um, I'll close. In, uh, in 1989, uh, uh, excuse me, Gorbachev took his wife to see the Holy Father. And um, what he said to her, her, her husband's name was Maxim, or excuse me, her father's name was Maxim. And so using the way the patronymics that the Russian used, her, her name was Raisa, he said, Raisa Maximova, I have the honor to introduce the highest moral authority on earth. Um, uh, he later confessed to the Holy Father that he had been baptized by his grandmother. Um, he who had been sent Communist Party apparatchik all of his life had secretly been baptized. What graces came to him, uh, however slowly and however tortuously? Um, uh, it was these three who could see through this monstrosity and simply were resolved to use every tool at their disposition, every mechanism they had, and it didn't matter they couldn't think of anything today. Okay, well, tomorrow I'll think of something. But at all times, in every way, I want that to end. And that's what the three of them were all about. Thank you very much. Professor, I happen to know that the uh, Secretary of the Veterans Affairs was also a Polishman. Uh, I don't recall his name, but I would imagine there were other members of the administration who were also involved in this. Do you know of a few of them? Well, one of them was uh, a holdover from the Carter admin administration, Zbigniew uh, Brzezinski. Um, he, uh, uh, he and Cardinal Kroll, who also was of Polish extraction, were very helpful uh, to the Reagan administration and to the Vatican. What, what's funny is that when the Holy Father was elected, you know, the Politburo and the Soviet Union had no idea how could this possibly have happened, and they supposed that it was a conspiracy. Uh, <laughs> wow, you guys are so messed up. You know, there's, uh, <laughs> that is just ridiculous. But, um, yeah, they, they imagined that it was a conspiracy. Cardinal Kroll and Brzezinski had somehow engineered the conclave. Okay, if you like to be a prisoner of your own fantasies, who am I to stop you? Yes, uh, would you uh, ascribe a reasonably positive role to Gorbachev also in this process? I mean, I agree wholeheartedly with the triumvirate you talked about, but how would you, how would you view his role in, in, in the fourth partner in this thing? I, I, I would be hesitant to call him a fourth partner, but I also think that it is fair to say that he played a role. 
Um, now, I, I suppose anybody played a role. Brezhnev played a role. But it, it would be fair to say that, that Gorbachev played a positive role. Um, the Gorbachev comes to power in the Soviet Union uh, as being someone who had the best chance of reforming communism. Uh, you remember Glasnost and Perestroika um, restructuring. I mean, the problem is you can't fix what's evil. You can't fix what's wrong from the beginning in every way. It's not, you know, uh, when I was young, uh, some of my teachers, I'm very sad to say, uh, said, well, gosh, if only they could, you know, somehow or other catch up with their consumer goods and other things, then the Soviet Union would be happy. Um, and I said, you seem to think the bread lines are somehow not what the system is designed to produce, because people who need bread aren't thinking about freedom. They're thinking about eating. Um, uh, you know, they want people to be hungry. They want people to need, because if you're, if you, what's going to happen? What's going to happen if you're always on the edge? You aren't thinking about important things. Um, I do believe uh, that at some level, all members of the Politburo must have known that their system was a lie from beginning to end. Uh, but at the same time, you know, it's a problem when you lie to yourself over and over and over and over and over. Sometimes you come to believe it. And I believe that Gorbachev did believe that there was some chance to reform. I also think that he did not want bloodshed. And so he thought he could make a deal with Reagan. He thought he could make a deal with Thatcher. He thought he could make a deal with the Holy Father and that he could preserve something. Um, had someone like Stalin been in power, bad things would have happened. But instead, and, and I don't say someone weak like Gorbachev, no. Someone who had a completely different mindset. Um, as I said at the end, I am not, I'm, I'm the last person to tell you that Grace was not operating through that man who was baptized by his good grandmother. Um, uh, you know, it's not for me to uh, pronounce on the mysterious workings of grace. So I believe he was a positive force. Um, and I believe that he uh, attempted to do his best, particularly at the end. Yeah, I got a question concerning modern communist societies. Like uh, you look at China and uh, Vietnam, and they seem to operate a little bit more market-based. Um, I'm sure underneath there's similarities, but can you speak a little bit to where the um, fall of the Soviet Union and, and the Holy Father's influence had an effect on today's communist societies and where they're going? All right, that's a, a very complex question, and I'm afraid I, I simply don't have time to do it any real justice. Um, I, I, I would not think that it's fair to describe, uh, say, China as being any kind of a free market society. Uh, markets operate in a very weird way. Um, it, it's almost like some kind of a, of a hellish, um, crony capitalist uh, uh, society. I am not fond, you'll often hear on talk radio, you know, hey, we have a capitalist system. I happen to think that's a very bad way of describing what we have. Uh, capitalism itself is a term invented by Marx. Um, I would prefer to say that we have a free market system. 
Um, uh, I, I, you won't hear me defending capitalism, because uh, capitalism is a Marxist construct. Um, just like I don't let the people on the pro-abortion side uh, speak, uh, uh, control my language, I won't let Marx describe the economic system I would like to live under and do live under in some way. Um, uh, but that one really is one that is capitalist. That is, there's massive movements of capital at state direction. And then somehow or other they're sort of inserted into a weird version of the market. Um, I happen to believe that communist, uh, excuse me, that, that uh, the Chinese economy is headed for an enormous crack up and soon. On the other hand, I also know that I'm no economist. <laughs> so I would not advise you to go and uh, change your stock portfolio on the basis of what I said. Uh, because I'm not, uh, I'm not a student of that kind of thing. It's just a hunch that I have. Uh, part of the problem of command economies is that no one can know everything. No, really, I looked it up. No one can know everything. Um, and so what you have is instead of you saying, well, you know, that's a good price for nails or that's a good price, uh, a good price for uh, gasoline or whatever, and then making your own decisions and shifting things accordingly, um, you have somebody far away who says this is the price for nails and that is the price for gasoline and this many gallons are necessary for over there. Simply in order to produce a loaf of bread, do you know how many people have to move, move how many things in order to get it to the grocery store? There's like 485 trillion, give or take three, maybe four, um, <laughs> decisions that have to be made. How much wheat's going to be produced? When? When's it going to be um, uh, ground up? How is it going to be in into flour? What place is going to make it? You got the plastic bags. Ooh, you forgot the twisty tie. I mean, all these things. There's a hundred choices. The trucks to get it to your uh, local giant or Safeway. And when you do get it there, the air conditioning is necessary in that place in order to keep it uh, fresh before you come in. And there's, a, there's a million decisions and no one can make them. And so a society where somebody pretends to make a lot of them is a problem. Um, uh, but I will say that I do believe that these three, you know, the, 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 the amazing crack up of the Soviet Union meant that most of these places had to do something, um, but not all of them. Almost nothing's happened in Cuba. Uh, and that's because it's a little island and all things are very tidy and it's hard to get in or out. Um, very little has happened there. Um, and more's the pity. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.